Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Religious freedom is one of the most contentious political issues of our time. Although survey data suggests that most Americans support religious freedom in a very broad sense, it starts to get messy very quickly when we turn to particular issues. In a culture marked by disaffiliation from formal religion, rising nationalism, and intense political polarization, what are the prospects for religious liberty in the coming year? Joining us to talk about the cultural and political landscape is Dr. Samuel Goldman. Dr. Goldman is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University, where he is also the executive director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom. His most recent book is God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, published by University of Pennsylvania Press. His current project is titled After Nationalism, under contract with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aaron. We often hear about how polarized politics has become. This is a common, you see lots of articles about this. Some writers and scholars even suggest that politics for many people is driven primarily by the need to identify with a group rather than views on actual issues. What do you think is driving this? What's driving political polarization and tribalism? What's going on here? Well, I think that one of the factors promoting political polarization is the erosion of some of the personal and local relationships that once um, gave meaning and structure to people's lives. Um, Religion and religious communities are an important example of those relationships, but they're not the only ones either. Um, Affiliation with labor unions or participation in local charitable organizations um, has all declined over the last uh, several decades. And I think that as a result, people are seeking guidance and meaning in the categories that remain powerful. And one of those categories is the political distinction between uh, Democrats and Republicans or uh, understood more ideologically between progressives and conservatives. And the result is that a lot of the energy that once went into these other sources of association and meaning is redirected through politics, which has the effect of embittering our our public life and sometimes even our civil and family lives. I mean, do you think in that sense that when people talk about addressing polarization, we often just hear calls for uh, more civil discourse, civility, that sort of thing. But do you think that that's such a surface level way to address that issue, that it's more building up these sorts of small associations or, or trying to rebuild um, civil society is a way is a better way to address well, the issue as a whole. One part of the problem, and the reason that it is such a difficult problem to address, is that we increasingly segregate ourselves into communities of like-minded people. Um, whether through the places that we choose to live or the religious institutions or non-religious institutions in which we participate or the educational institutions uh, where uh, we seek uh, training and learning or send send our children and so on. Um, Increasingly, people make those decisions 
in part based on these polarized, or as sometimes people say, tribal affiliations. And as a result, we are less likely to know people with whom we have many things in common, uh, but with whom we may disagree politically. And I think that um, most studies show, I'm not a social scientist, but I, I do try to pay attention to social science, that that's really the crucial factor, direct personal contact um, with people with whom we, we disagree uh, politically, and that's, that's becoming more difficult to find. So yes, um, civil discourse and providing models of conversation and interaction is important, but I think even more important is finding ways to bring together people who may disagree in ideology, who may uh, vote differently, but also share beliefs, preferences, habits, and goals, and can discover that despite uh, their contrary opinions, they can live together. So Dr. Goldman, like, so before we turn on the mic, we were talking about millennials and different generations. and But one of the things I've noticed is how social media or just the ability to communicate not in person, right, digitally, has, um, I've, I've seen it change over time. I'm in my 40s and have been using email, all of that for a long time, but I've seen it change, I think, in the last maybe 10, 15 years. Twitter, I mean, it's, it's just vile. But And so when I, when I really want to have a constructive conversation, I have it in person. Do you, do you think like, what are your thoughts on, like, do we need like rules, guidelines that everybody in the universe using digital communication needs to adhere to online that would like prevent all of this, you know, you know, completely destructive discourse online from it, it seeps into, I think, actual conversations in person, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on Well, that? if I were uh, emperor of the universe, I think I would just ban it all <laughs> entirely, but probably that, that isn't... I'd vote for you. That isn't feasible. Um, I think that whenever possible, uh, it's important to promote um, personal face-to-face -face encounters. Uh, and again, studies, studies suggest that when people have to express their views directly to someone else who may disagree and may respond with questions or objections or challenges, um, they are not more likely to reach agreement, but more likely to respect those with whom they disagree and perhaps to find areas on which they can agree even if they can't on, on a particular issue. Um, and one small way I do that in my own work is by banning laptops in, in my classrooms. Um, we do things wow. the old-fashioned way with uh, a pen a pen and paper. And in, in my classes, inevitably, controversial issues and provocative opinions are, are expressed. And I think that it really helps that students have to look at each other and look at me and make their cases. So that's not a solution that will save America or, or save the world, but 
I think that whenever there are opportunities for face-to-face conversation, um, they they should be they should be seized. Do they grouse about that? You know, they don't. Okay. Um, my experience is that students are willing to make the attempt if you explain why you are doing it. Um, and most of them find that it's rewarding, sometimes after a brief period of discomfort. Um, it works better in relatively smaller classes. I teach mostly seminar-style courses um, with fewer than 30 students. Um, I don't know that it would be worth the effort in a larger lecture hall. But there's a lesson there, too, which is that uh, if you want students to think about um, difficult questions, they're much more likely to do that in an effective way um, in a classroom where they know the instructor and they know each other than in an impersonal setting. So again, um, I think that the, the lesson is that um, schools, universities, other institutions need to find ways to establish direct relationships among their various constituents, whoever they, they may be, um, rather than placing them in impersonal situations even if they are all together in in the same room. One of the difficulties, I mean, you're kind of hinting at this, is just some religious liberty conflicts, sometimes they're they're obvious, like, but many of them are difficult, you know, um, in terms, the, the, they can be complex, but whenever things are so polarized, it becomes difficult then to really talk about these things with any sense of nuance. Uh, because you might be seen as betraying your tribe in some way. I think that one of the ways that you see this play out is some conservative Christians, for example, being uncomfortable talking about religious liberty for other religious min- for religious minorities like Muslims, because you may be seen as being not, especially this kind of connects with the nationalism piece. You know, you're seen as insufficiently conservative if you're promoting this the rights of these others. Whereas if you if, if you follow this stuff closely, I mean, you understand that religious freedom is either for everybody or it's not going to work at all. So if for no other reason, it's in your than self-interest, it's in your interest to promote the religious liberty of other groups. But you may be seen by your own as as somehow a traitor, whereas then people on the other side might think that you are somehow a hypocrite, you know, that you only talk about religious liberty when it when it works for you. I don't know if that makes sense, but it seems yeah, like... No, and, and, and that's reflected um, in some of the social science research, um, which finds that when religious liberty is is presented as an issue for religious minorities and especially non-Christian minorities, um, then people who express progressive views are much more likely to endorse religious freedom or to uh, express a favorable opinion of religious freedom. Um, they're much less likely to do so uh, when it is framed in a way that seems most relevant to Christians in general and especially to, to conservative Christians. The same is true for conservatives. Um, when religious freedom is presented in a way that connects it with the concerns of Christians, and again, especially conservative Christians, 
conservatives and Republicans are more likely to express support. They are much less likely to do so um, when uh, religious liberty concerns are illustrated with stories about about Muslim concerns, for 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 example. Um, so I think that that reflects exactly the phenomenon um, that you're describing, um, and it's 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 a regrettable one. Yeah, I mean it's difficult because like I've seen some research like there was this Beckett sponsored this religious freedom index where they're trying to measure attitudes on religious freedom looking at different different categories and even even the category that got the least support still got major, majority of Americans support, support religious freedom I think most people will say as a general idea that they the idea of of accommodation of tolerance of that sort of thing and I, I wonder sometimes when people say that they support it on these surveys when they're when it's broadly put, you know, they're imagining themselves being tolerated. But whenever it involves, you know, your group having to tolerate another group, <laughs> then that's what I'm saying. Like whenever you start to get to particular issues, that's where it starts to get tricky. And everybody may have in mind like who it's protecting and who who needs protection, who doesn't need protection, based on whichever side in the in in the of the polarized debates you fall on and it's interesting because i say that like promoting religious freedom for one group can be beneficial to your own group that can be true for christians promoting it for muslims but it works the other way there was all the uproar about indiana's religious freedom restoration act and then as i recall the first case to to win under the under rifra in indiana was actually the ACLU winning a case for a Muslim prisoner. And so it totally worked the opposite of how it's claimed in all of the, when there are the arguments about it. So I don't know, it's just, it's one of these things we wrestle with in this office of how do you get around some of this? Because the more abstract you get, the less it seems like you're even saying. Right. Um, well, and I, I think that's one of the distinctive features of American politics more generally, um, which in some ways is healthy, but I think can also be maddening. At a sufficient level of abstraction, Americans basically agree on most things. And there is a great deal of research that shows very general and broad ideological consensus. And sometimes political scientists point to this research and say, well, we're not so polarized after all. Actually, we, we agree about things. The problem is that the terms are so abstract that they can conceal these very specific and often very passionate disagreements. Um, and this is different, I think, to um, most European countries historically, where there is much less agreement at the level of principle, but sometimes a lot more practical accommodation. Um, the, the late political scientist um, Samuel Huntington argued that uh, in America, political disagreements um, are conducted within a broad consensus and are about clashes between elements of that consensus, commitments to personal freedom and social equality, for example. Whereas in Europe and in much of the rest of the world, um, political arguments are about disagreements between broad ideological perspectives. And I, I think that there's still a lot of truth to that observation. What do you make of that? I mean, do you think that that makes our clashes more intense because they're in some ways 
they're kind of within the family, so to speak? Or do you think that that it gives the possibility of of um, working through these sorts of conflicts? My 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 instinct, I, I don't know exactly how you would test that empirically, is that um, it makes our disagreements more intense and, and a feature of American life um, that has struck foreign observers for, for centuries um, is how despite Americans' superficial disagreements, um, there is also profound moral controversy. And there's a contrast there, at least historically, I think, to, to Europe, where in principle, people disagreed a great deal, um, but in practice were much more flexible. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville describes this in his great work, Democracy in America, but he's by no means the only one to observe it. So I want to talk about, move to talking a little bit about another phenomenon in, in our public life today that gets a lot of commentary, a lot of concern, especially to the Catholic bishops, you might imagine, is the issue of um, disaffiliation from religion. You know, it's a major concern for religious leaders. Do you think that that this has an effect on attitudes towards religious liberty? I know I've, once when we've talked in the past, you've mentioned that it's a, that you really want to make sure to make a distinction between disaffiliation and secularization. So, I mean, maybe talk about that a little bit. What What's going on with disaffiliation? Does it affect religious liberty? How is it different from secularization? Right. So, um, first of all, just to define terms in the exactly. spirit of, yes, of, yes, of clarity, yeah. um, uh, disaffiliation um, refers to people who do not identify with any religious community or denomination. So whereas they once might have said, I am a Catholic, or I am a Methodist, um, or I am a Jew, or I am a Reformed Jew, um, they now uh, do not express any such affiliation. And these are sometimes described as as the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, right, right. not N-U-N-S. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, S. Um, and uh, the, the so-called nuns are not only the largest category um, in American religious life overall, but they are also now, I believe, a, a majority among younger Americans. Um, I don't recall the precise cutoff. It may be those younger than 35 or younger or younger than 30. Um, and that's really a new phenomenon. Um, scholars, particularly historians, disagree a great deal about the extent of religious affiliation um, in the past. And one argument that uh, a number of historians make is that contrary to what we sometimes think, formal affiliation with churches or other religious communities um, has been much lower in the past uh, than we sometimes likely uh, like to believe and has actually been rather stable. But as long as we have had survey data on these questions, so going back to roughly World War II, um, most Americans have expressed some affiliation, whether or not they had any formal relationship with a religious community. So this In is, other this words, is whether or not they attend any services they, or not, whether it's just they, whether they're, it's their self-identification exactly. with Whether or not, whether or not they, they okay. attend or whether they are formal members or make, make contributions, um, though that, that kind of participation historically has been 
fairly low, about 20 to 30 percent as far as historians can tell. But vast majorities of Americans until quite recently expressed some affiliation. They said, again, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist or, or whatever. Um, so this is, this is a really big change. Um, and it's a change that brings America closer to uh, Europe um, where religious, religious disaffiliation um, has, has long since um, attracted a, a majority of the population. Um, in, in the UK, for example, um, I think that affiliation with the Church of England is under 10%. So America was often seen as an exception to this trend, which has been observed uh, elsewhere in in the Western world, speaking speaking generally, it now seems to be less of an exception. But there is an exception to the exception, and that is the fact, or at least the evidence, that many of the Americans who have become nuns who are disaffiliated continue to express religious beliefs or um, to express sympathy with religion. So even though um, rates of religious affiliation are much lower, still large majorities of Americans um, express belief in God. And that's very different to Europe, where the trend has not only been toward disaffiliation, but to um, secularization more broadly. So what's emerging in America is, is a large population of people who may hold certain religious beliefs and may be sympathetic to certain religious practices. Um, and there's reason to think maybe substituting non-traditional religious practices for traditional religious practices. So um, there, there are some studies that show that people who don't express a religious affiliation are more likely to express belief in, in ghosts or crystals or other paranormal phenomena, um, and yet do not claim to be members of any religious community. So there's, there's, there's good news and bad news here, at least from a particular perspective. The, the, the bad news is that Americans are moving away from organized formal religion. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is that, um, at least so far, that does not mean rejecting religion comprehensively. So, Dr. Goldman, it sounds like what you're describing is maybe spiritual could that be equated to people who are not they're not secularized they're still spiritual is that would you that's 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 one that's that's one example okay so, so, so secularization is then what equated with non-spiritualization something like that right um so the the term um scholars sometimes use is is disenchantment which is uh, a concept that was developed by the 19th century German sociologist Max Weber and the idea of disenchantment is that there are no um, unseen forces in the world there are no beings or powers that transcend uh, our understanding um, what you see is is what you get it sounds so depressing um, Weber Weber was depressed <laughs> um, and there's certainly okay. and there's certainly and there yeah. certainly are some of the so-called nuns who have adopted a, a disenchanted perspective. But there are also a large portion of them, and possibly a, a majority, um, who are what, what 
is sometimes called spiritual but not religious insofar as they express um, a, a belief in God or a belief in, in cosmic purpose power. of some kind. Okay. Uh, but they, they no longer claim to be affiliated with an organized religious community. They're kind of defining or, it for themselves or... Right, some, or, yeah. or any of the, the historically grounded religious traditions, at least in, in the West. And, that, and that's also an interesting area of, of research as people move away from traditional Western institutions and communities, do they sort of mix and match and pick and choose and become interested in, in new age or non-Western forms of spirituality? There, there's some evidence that, that that is what is happening. I'm, I'm not an, at all an expert on this. Like I, I read general reports about this sort of thing. But just as you're talking, I can't help but, you know, you think of people you know that might kind of fall into some of these categories. and then, But then at the same time, you kind of wonder how much just language and terminology affects these sorts of things. And what, what I'm saying is this, like, you know, I, I grew up in one of the reddest counties in, this, in the United States. And now I live in one of the bluest. You grew up in Texas, right? In a, yeah. But even with, I mean, Texas is kind of mixed. Yeah. But I grew up in semi-rural part of Texas, right? Not, not in Austin. Not in Austin. <laughs> um, but I can imagine people that I've known both here in the Washington area and in Texas who in some ways might live somewhat similar lives in terms of like they might sometimes drop in on a evangelical praise and worship style, casual come as you are worship service. They might drop in on that. But in the heartland, I think if you were asked on a survey, how do you identify, you might identify yourself as a Christian, even if you really aren't participating. Whereas here, I can imagine somebody who lives like that just saying, saying like, I don't I don't affiliate with any religion, even though their practical lives are actually kind of the same. Or, or like with the disenchantment thing. I mean, you know, I've known plenty of people not affiliated at all with religion who still have some sense of the supernatural. And then I've also known plenty of Christians who, at least while they were raising their children, were going to church every Sunday, who lived, who practically were totally lived, saw the world in a disenchanted way. Uh, so and it's a funny thing, like these the way yeah, these things and, mix and, and match some, with each some, other. Some some scholars argue that the change has more to do with language and the way that people interpret their behavior yeah, than yeah. it does with their actual behavior, um, and that that's clearly part of it. Uh, these 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 matters are extremely difficult to quantify, and I have great respect for my colleagues who try to do that. I just <laughs> express correct opinions about everything. Uh, but there, there is reason to think that the change has come largely among um, nominal believers, especially nominal Christians who have not been actively engaged in a religious community, do not participate regularly um, in worship, but maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years ago would have said that they were Christians or expressed affiliation with a particular denomination um, out of a sense of social obligation or, or habit, but now no longer feel internal or external pressure to do so. So it's not that people are living differently 
necessarily, but the way that they understand their their activities and their their way of life um, has has changed. And again, it's very very difficult to quantify. But I do think that particularly um, in the kind of um, educated, uh, relatively well-off metropolitan circles that you're that you're describing and that are so so um, uh, widespread around Washington. Um, that's most of the change. Um, it's not that people used to attend church once a week or, or once a month and then stop doing that. It's that the kind of people who might have gone to church once a year or never or only for a funeral no longer say that they are Christians or, or, or Catholics or whatever, uh, whatever category may be relevant. One of the things I wonder about with all this is just the question that I have in mind with this is, is, you know, what does a political culture in general with respect to religion need for religious freedom to thrive? I mean, like, do you think that a, a, a culture where there's widespread disenchantment is less inclined to, you know, give people a wide berth to practice their faith because you, you see it as just like, Bronze Age myths or whatever. I mean, this is kind of a broad question, but I sort of wonder, like, even if you have widespread un- disaffiliation, where if there's at least a sense that, like, a recognition of transcendence, that that still opens it up for there to be more to where you're willing to give space to others to practice their faith. Well, I think I think it creates two problems, both of which have become relatively familiar in these debates, whether or not people would use exactly the same words to to explain them. Um, One is the problem of demonstrating what's special about religion. Why should religion in particular uh, receive protection uh, in in law uh, that is not extended to other Shall we say lifestyle options um, to speak to speak very loosely? Religion has a priority um, in uh, American law and in the, in our Constitution um, that other ways of living simply don't. And as religion becomes less and less the the default and more and more one option among others, it becomes harder to to justify this kind of special treatment. Um, And a very recent example of this, which is not from the United States, but I think is relevant, is that um, a court in the UK uh, found just this week, I think, um, that that veganism, that not consuming any animal products um, is a religious practice or is equivalent to a religious practice and is therefore entitled to legal and institutional protection, even though it doesn't appeal um, to uh, to any any deity or sacred text and, and other traditional criteria of religion. So that that's that's one problem, um, figuring out what um, is special about religion. The other related problem is defining religion. Well, yes, this is what I'm thinking with the theology background is this is a big issue. We've talked to Dan Philpott from Notre Dame a little bit about this. William Cavanaugh has written about this. Yeah, yeah, this is a huge issue. It's like what even counts as religion at all? Um, Uh And 
historically in the United States and in its its colonial precursors, religion has been defined in a way that is implicitly Christian, to be sure, and maybe even implicitly Protestant. Um, there are some scholars who argue that the, the whole concept of religious freedom is a Protestant concept and doesn't, um, doesn't really apply to non-Protestant forms of Christianity, let alone non-Christian religions. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, go that far. Um, but I do think that the understanding of religion that has dominated American law and American public life for centuries is implicitly Protestant. Um, insofar as it gives priority to um, private private belief um, to, uh, over um, personal conduct, insofar as it appeals to voluntary association um, as opposed to a sense of collective responsibility or or uh, authority, um, and as the influence of, of Christianity. Um, in general, and Protestantism in, in particular, recede, it becomes harder and harder to uphold those 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 assumptions. Um, and you, you see this problem, um, I think, most clearly express, expressed in some debates about Islam, uh, in, in an argument um, that comes up all the time um, justifying uh, opposition to the establishment of mosques or other um, houses of, of Muslim worship or um, even uh, laws that have that have been passed banning the the application of Sharia law, which wasn't actually happening, but sort of prophylactically doing that. Um, the justification here is that Islam is not a religion. It is an ideology. It is a, a political program, uh, but it's it's not a religion. And I think the only way that can be sustained is by appealing to some of these Protestant inflected understandings of what of what religion is. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point to note the kind of Protestant background of how we think of religious freedom, because I mean it kind of goes back to the our previous conversation about uh, disaffiliation and what's perceived to be secularization, a lot of it's just kind of the collapse of mainline Protestantism as providing our country with a civil religion, and we don't really have that anymore. I wonder if we could kind of switch gears, though, and talk a little bit about your recent book, although I don't know, you may be tired of thinking about nationalism and, and right after writing. Nevertheless, writing, I, I persist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an author doesn't want to talk about his most recent book? Well, I don't know. Book? I mean, some people what? have different, they may, this is all you're thinking about, and you're chomping at the bit to, for the chance to to talk about it or you know you may be so well, tired i want to know what it. nationalism is yeah. that, i i wasn't sure when i first encountered this term <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's a it's experienced a bit of a resurgence in recent years um but as mary's is pointing out it's a term that gets thrown has is being thrown around a lot that may not always be defined so if, maybe just say what is nationalism? And say a little bit about why you decided to write a book on this. Well, I've been interested for a long time, really, for my, my whole um, academic career in the ways that people imagine communities. How, how do they understand themselves as connected to other individuals um, and even connected to 
other groups. So my first book, which you were kind enough to mention, um, is uh, called God's Country, Christian Zionism in America. And it's it's really an investigation of some of these same questions. In particular, um, I, I try to understand how Americans have imagined their own national community through reflection um, initially on the the biblical accounts of, of the Hebrews and then more recently um, through uh, the organized Zionist movement and then the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, so my my interest in nationalism is is continuous um, with with that, um, but it just so happens that this has become a particularly Should relevant sales? topic. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. I, I, I try to to write about issues in which something is sure to happen, and whether it's good or bad, it's good for my sales. <laughs> yeah. So I figured that that Israel and the Middle East would never would never <laughs> yeah, die yeah. out as an issue, and so too um, with with nationalism. Good but guess. I think that the the resurgence of interest in nationalism is a result of some of the same phenomena that we were discussing earlier. Um, the sense of, of disconnection, uh, the, the loss of identification with a, a broader community pursuing broader purposes, the individualization of our life, the, the endless choices that we seem to face. We have to pick for ourselves everything that we do or don't rather than being guided, if not coercively governed by, by overarching norms. I think that the, the resurgence of influence of interest in nationalism is partly a, a response to that. And it may even be connected to um, the disaffiliating or secularizing trends that we were discussing and that as people are less likely to find guidance and community and meaning in religion, they look for it somewhere else. And the the nation or political community is one place that you can find some of those some of those same um, those same goods, um, particularly if if you are distanced from organized religion. So boiling it down to a bumper sticker. This, is this this is reflected in what you see when you see the bumper stickers that say "God bless all nations," right? In response to the "God bless America," or is that kind of what we're dealing with here? Like the sense of like, well, it, it like the the anti nationalism, in other right. words, the re, the the reaction yes. to nationalism. Yes, I think okay. I think I think that's right, and of course the. Um, relation between God and nations um, is one of the great controversies um, in Western religious traditions, um, which derive ultimately, and Islam, of course, is, is included from the Hebrew Bible, which is the story of, of a nation. So figuring out what that means for the moral status of nations and the relation between nations and their supreme authority um, is very difficult and has been subject to debate for for thousands um, for thousands of years. So I think these 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 phenomena are connected. But what we've observed, at least in my view, over the last 
10 or, or 15 years um, is the uh, revival of a, a particular kind of nationalism, um, which scholars sometimes describe as, as populist nationalism. Um, and populist nationalism, I'm paraphrasing the political scientist um, Jan Werner Muller, who teaches at Princeton, is the claim that not all of the people are really the people. In other words, there may be people who are subject to the legal jurisdiction of the, the political community, who may be legal members of the political community, but they're not really part of it. Um, they are, in one way or another, outsiders. And this idea is sometimes expressed when you hear people talking about real America. Um, and that's what I'm interested in trying to figure out. Um, why is this a, a recurring tendency, not only in the United States, but I, I think in, in all modern democracies? And also, um, what can we do about it? It clearly has dangerous possibilities, but may also um, be useful in certain ways. So that's that's what the book is about. I mean, is it useful in that it could foster a healthy patriotism? Is that where you're thinking? Whereas, well, so so one one argument, which is not my argument, um, but uh, has been expressed um, by intellectuals who, who describe themselves as national conservatives or sometimes as, as new nationalists is, is, is precisely that. Um, that yes, there may be um, exclusive or authoritarian tendencies within nationalism, uh, but nationalism is also, is also necessary to create a sense of solidarity and commitment to common goals. So what, what we need to do um, is, is to cultivate and, and refine and elevate this nationalist sentiment um, rather than dismissing it or, or rejecting it. Um, I'm uncomfortable with that, um, largely because I'm, I'm uncomfortable whenever intellectuals claim that they are able to guide or, or cultivate um, or refine political movements. I think it, it tends rather to go the other way, uh, the other way around. My assessment of the history is that they, they rarely end well. Um, that said, I think that populist nationalism is, is a warning sign. Uh, it's 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 a stress test. Uh, it tells you that something is 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 wrong, um, and if the sources of stress are not identified and addressed, um, then there may be an explosion in in the future. So that that is what I would. That's the lesson that I would hope to learn. A lot of attention has been paid to economic sources of, of stress, um, and I think that's right at least to some degree. Less attention has been played to cultural sources of stress, and this is where I think that religious freedom is actually quite important. Um, the, the more that um, conservative Christians are told that they are um, 
bigots, that they are morally equivalent to segregationists, that they are even even um, uh, one step to being Nazis, the more they will tend to resist and to seek protector figures who, who they think can defend them from the secular establishment. So even if you are not personally sympathetic to some of the arguments for religious freedom, um, I think that prudence uh, would dictate giving a break um, to conservative Christian communities that feel themselves under increasing pressure from a, a liberal or, or secular establishment. I also think that there are sources of representational stress. Um, our, our electoral system um, does not function very well in providing all citizens a, a feeling of, of efficacy and importance. And when people think that no one is listening to them and it doesn't matter how they vote, nothing ever happens, they get mad and seek and seek other solutions. So uh, again, I, I think that populist nationalism um, should be taken as, as a warning signal um, and should lead us to consider and try as best we can to address these, these sources of stress, um, although not without, at least for me, um, abandoning the basic principles of liberal democracy, um, including religious toleration and pluralism. Yeah, I, I mean, that's where I can see it being an, a problem for religious liberty is just this general when you start talking about who's inside and outside, even though you're everybody, you're still talking about the citizenry of, of the same nation. But if you start identifying, saying, well, the, these are the real Americans and these people aren't, uh, then it's much easier to say, well, then they don't really have the right to, to build a place of worship. Right. And, and the challenge, and this is one of the, the arguments that I make in the book, which has the somewhat provocative title, After Nationalism. And the point of the title is not that nationalism is bad and we need to get rid of it, um, but that nationalism is plural. There are many real Americas that are real to the people in them. And on the one hand, they are all America, but they're also quite, quite different. Um, And that rather than trying to recover um, a general consensus, which I think is mostly mythical anyway, um, people look back on the early 1960s or the 1950s, um, and if you scrutinize carefully those periods, you'll see there was still plenty of controversy and disagreement and tension um, even even then. Um, but at any rate, not to try to homogenize these different places, these different communities, the, these different visions of American life, but rather to try to figure out ways that they can coexist. Um, and also um, communally. And this connects again to my interest in religious freedom, because I think that is a way that people who disagree often profoundly on matters of existential importance can nevertheless live together and live with their disagreements while cooperating on other matters. Yeah, this is, I mean, Pope Francis early on his pontificate and Evangelii Gaudium has a line in there about promoting a healthy pluralism. And I think that's partly what we're talking about here is wanting a healthy pluralism. 
Well, Dr. Mm. Goldman, thank you so much. I, I always I enjoy reading your your work, and and um, I'm glad that you were able to come and and take some time out of your day to come and talk to us, especially with the semester getting ready to start. I'm sure you're busy, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm-hmm.